0: This week on the show, we show you a throwaway browser configuration on a FreeBSD with POT within 5 minutes. OmniOS as OpenBSD guest with Beehive as well. BSD versus Linux distro development comparison. My FreeBSD laptop builds for ThinkPad X390. FreeBSD current binary upgrades are possible, and we describe you how in this week's episode of BSD Mouse. No. now episode 359 throwaway browser recorded for the 15th of july 2020 this episode of bsd now is brought to you by TarSnap, the online backup for truly paranoids hi i'm your host benedict Teuschling. and i'm alan jude welcome to this week's episode by the way want to hear a joke when's the best time to harvest cherries when the neighbors are on holiday of course Um, moving into the headlines this week Uh, the throwaway browser the namesake of this episode on free BSD with pot within five minutes so the title alone is cool Uh,
1: pot is a great and relatively new jail management tool it offers a more devops style provisioning uh, and can even be used to provide docker like scalable cloud services together with nomad which is a cluster scheduler and console if you want to know more about that they point you to actually the FreeBSD Papers website. Luca Pizza Miglio had a paper or uh, a talk he gave at FOSDEM, uh, orchestrating jails with Nomad and Pot. So uh, when using FreeBSD on your desktop, you can also make use of this to make a throwaway browser jail. That way, the browser environment is reliable and completely erased and reset each time you create it with this single command. Note below that all these Pot commands need to be run as root. So first, you want to uh, install and set up Pot as described on the. Uh, website you can just package install pot and then do pot init and then in this case they're setting the attributes no rc script and, uh, and also making it not a persistent jail so it won't be started again if it closes and so on and then set up a browser flavor that basically crabs uh, changes the package repo to use the latest repo instead of the quarterly repo bootstraps package um, disables send mail enables ssh creates a Firefox user and then installs Firefox. They can just do pot create a new jail called one-time browser, install FreeBSD 12one on the public network bridge, and use the flavor jail, or sorry, the flavor browser. Uh, And then it will use that flavor file you just created and install Firefox. Mm -hmm. Then you can just pot start one-time browser, and then use SSH with X forwarding, and then suddenly the Firefox running in that jail will appear on your desktop. And then you can use it, and then you importantly can throw it away. So you just pot stop one time browser and then destroy one time browser, and now it's gone. Or even better, you can snapshot it before you use it, or after you've, you know, done just the basic setup you want to get the buttons where you want them or whatever. You snapshot it, and then you can do your browsing and then pot revert to roll back to the older version of the snapshot, and that way. Any tracking cookies or anything that gets recorded, any kind of history uh, that gets recorded by the browser
0: gets erased every time you revert to
1: that snapshot of a known good clean version of the browser.
0: Mm-hmm. Nothing except uh, the cookies or any other backdoor thingies in there. It's yep. nicely tucked away in the jail. You get a nice clean version every mm-hmm. time. Like fresh install. Cool. That's pretty straightforward so far. And uh, yeah, could be used for any other kind of applications that could also be... Um, an X11 thing, like not just a browser, but any other application that runs in a separate environment or should be run there. Cool, very straightforward. Uh, people should use this more often. And uh, yeah, thanks for the write up. Then we have OpenBSD guest with Beehive on OmniOS. Yeah, so they describe on PB Digital that today they will be creating an OpenBSD guest via Beehive on OmniOS. They will be adding a pass-through Ethernet controller so they can have a multi-home multi guest that will serve as a firewall and router. This post will cover setting up Beehive on OmniOS, so it will also be a good introduction to Beehive itself. As well, they look into OpenBSD's UEFI bootloaders, so if you have trouble with this, there are also some... Uh, insights there. So, of course, first things first, install Beehive. Otherwise, it's not very uh, entertaining. Uh, they will cover the installation of Beehive onto an OmniOS system uh, briefly. They have a separate link in the show notes or in the um, article they wrote to setting up the BSD boot disk. If you want to uh, jump ahead to that, um, to install Beehive onto OmniOS, it's fairly straightforward. Package install brand slash Beehive. Uh, This will install system slash beehive, so simple. Then they create a storage for the Omnus zone guests. Uh, Every zone on a system has at least one dedicated ZFS dataset, and it's good practice to create a parent dataset under where all zones will live. Common convention is to mount this dataset as slash zones and create it at the top level of a pool. So they do a zpool create data. In this case, the disk is called C2T1D0, but your mileage may vary. That's fine. Well, yes. Um, the That's how disks are named on
1: Solaris. So instead of you know ADA0 or DA7 like we have on FreeBSD, they have these names, which means controller 2, target 1, disk 0.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can...
1: So it also tells you kind of where on the bus the disk is.
0: Yeah, if you're used to that convention, then it's uh, fairly straightforward. Uh, then you can verify this with Z zpool list. Yes, the pool appears. Excellent. And it has the size that you intend to have. Uh, now that this pool exists, the following command will create the top-level ZFS dataset named Zones. Uh, do a ZFS create dash O mount point equals slash zones to the data slash zones. Okay. The creation of the ZFS dataset can be verified as well using ZFS list. This is not too exciting, but it should appear there. Otherwise, something went wrong. Then you set up the OpenBSD boot disk using the mini root 67fs disk image. Uh, Download it from OpenBSD CDN and um, create a block device to boot from, which is lofiadm-a slash zone slash iso slash miniroot 67fs to dev lofi slash one. Then you create a vnic, a virtual network interface card uh, using DL admin or dladm. Uh, create dash vnic dash l e 1000 g 0 to open BSD 0. Then you configure that nick to see that it has a link. Yes, that is routing packages. Then you configure the physical network card for PCI pass-through, which you uh, then uh, make work uh, using PRT-CONF, following a couple more steps that are all documented pretty well. And then you go to configuring the OpenBSD Beehive Zone. Uh, That takes a couple of commands in zone config. And once that is set up, you install the uh, OpenBSD Beehive Zone, boot the OpenBSD Beehive Zone, and then go to the console to uh, log in. Set a console in the OpenBSD Beehive Zone and boot that to uh, the root disk with UEFI. Yeah, so that's a nice tutorial. And all the way down to uh, where you want to be, you find you can do a capital c OpenBSD or SSH into your target machine. And that pretty much confirms that this machine has networked using the PCI pass-through. Very nice. So, time for the news roundup this week. We have a uh, BSD versus Linux distribution development article over on DistroWatch. BSD versus Linux, and they say, comparing apples to
1: BSD has written in and asked, I was reading one of the old articles from the uh, DistroWatch archives. And one of the things mentioned was how the BSDs have a distinct approach in terms of packaging the base system relative to the user land apps. And that Linux distros at the time were not following the same practice. Are there Linux distros that have adopted the same uh, approach in modern times? If not, are there technical limitations that are preventing them from doing so, Uh, such as some distros supporting multiple kernel versions maybe? And so DistroWatch answers. Uh, In the article mentioned above, I made the observation that Linux distributions tend to take one or two approaches, uh, or one of two approaches when it comes to packaging software. Generally, a Linux distribution will either offer a rolling release, where virtually all the packages are regularly updated to the latest stable branch, or a fixed release, where almost all packages are kept at a set version number and only receive bug fixes for a long lifecycle. So projects like Arch and Void Linux are uh, rolling releases, and uh, options like uh, Fedora and Ubuntu offer more of a a fixed platform. Which is funny, because I consider Fedora to be a lot more up-to-date than CentOS, but I guess they're mostly talking about desktops here. Mm, Anyway, uh, basically, with few exceptions, lineage distributions all all fall into one of those two categories where there's a rolling release of constantly changing everything or a fixed release where most things stay still. The BSDs, in contrast, tend to take an alternative approach. Operating systems like FreeBSD and OpenBSD provide a fixed core or base operating system. The base tends to be small, stable, and only change in small evolutions on a set schedule. You know, is every six months. Uh, FreeBSD is major release every two-ish years, and a minor one supposed to be every six months or whatever. Uh, the cores of the main BSD branches are fixed, meanwhile most applications which you install on the BSDs, whether those are you know LibreOffice, Firefox, your desktop environment, or whatever, are kept up to date uh, with their upstream versions via the ports and packages system. Base operating system is fixed and stable, while the applications the user runs. Uh, can be kept up to date with the latest and greatest. This allows the BSDs to offer close to cutting edge applications, but without the risk of a routine update breaking the core operating system. A big part of why the BSDs have this stable core and uh, separate third-party software applications, while Linux distributions tend to take an all-or-nothing approach to these version upgrades, is the BSDs are developed all the core operating system components as part of one large project. You know, the FreeBSD project's repository contains the kernel, the command line tools, the file systems, uh, all the base libraries, uh, and that is all one repo managed by one set of developers. And then third-party applications, which we call ports and packages, are software developed by other people that just happens to work on FreeBSD. Mm. So, in other words, FreeBSD is a whole operating system, and then you can run lots of software on it. Kind of like if you, I guess if you compare that to... Uh, Windows or Mac OS, right? FreeBSD is the bits you get with the operating system, and then you have something like the App Store uh, that allows you to install software written by other people, or sometimes by the people from the operating system, but it's the software that's not included. Uh, What's really interesting is FreeBSD has gone and split that even further, where we have two package repos. Mm. One that's updated quarterly and only gets frequent security updates, whereas There's the latest one that is basically always the latest versions of the software. So depending what you're after, you can get a little bit more of that rolling release or of the fixed release, um, but on a quarterly basis and separate.
0: Yeah, depends on your needs and uh, speed of updates that are required, but uh, security updates should never be delayed.
1: Uh, Linux distributions, on the other hand, are are different uh, oftentimes because what makes that distribution is generally the combination of that third-party software. Right, like Linux, the operating system by itself, is just a kernel. And then you have the GNU project where you get like glibc uh, and like a lot of the command line tools like the core utils and so on. But really, the difference between Debian and Slackware is not the kernel and that base software, it's what else is included. Uh, and that's why you don't see that kind of same split as much. Because otherwise, the only difference between Debian and Slackware would mostly be which Kernel version they happen to be giving you,
0: <laughs> mm, yeah,
1: and there wouldn't there wouldn't be much of a compelling operating system there. And the fact that the Linux kernel is made by one team, the core utils and libraries are made by another team, the installers over here, and then the distro is just packaging a bunch of that together, and they add all these third party apps uh, together to actually make something interesting. While it's difficult, it's not entirely unheard of for some Linux distributions to attempt to maintain a small stable core while uh, regularly updating desktop applications. Uh, Some of these kind of semi-rolling release approaches taken by things like PC Linux OS or Chakra Linux, Um, where, you know, the kernel, the low-level graphics libraries, the core uh, tools tend to upgrade slowly while the desktop applications are updated more frequently. Um, And they can work for a while, but eventually those core components need to jump ahead and you can end up having problems where the... Software needs to be compatible with the version of the core and it can run into issues.
0: Yeah. But yeah, that's the the distinction to make, more that are usually made. And uh, there's probably more. Uh, Definitely check out the full article in DistroWatch and uh, probably discuss it a little bit.
1: Yeah. And they just, uh, in conclusion, they say, uh, while there are technical hurdles, such as distributed development, that make it uh, harder for Linux distributions to provide the same sort of base platform with third-party applications, it is possible for a Linux distribution to do. There are several solutions available, each with their strengths and weaknesses. None of these approaches is exactly the same as the BSDs, but some of them are similar and offer
0: some of the same benefits. Uh, Speaking of benefits, the next item might be of interest to the laptop builders out there or for the people who are in the market for a new one. Uh, We have a free BSD laptop build for you over on the Cyberdyne Systems website, corrupted.io. Um they have uh, written that they've always liked the ThinkPad hardware, and when they started to do more commuting, they decided they needed well, commuting these days? Well, okay. Um, they decided they needed something that has a decent sized screen but fit well on a bus. Luckily, about this time, Lenovo gave a nice gift in the ThinkPad X390. It's basically the famous X2 uh, XX series, but with a 13-inch screen and a smaller bezel. So with this laptop, they figured it was time to actually put the docs together or uh, or on how to get the FreeBSD workstation working. Uh, they have documented um, more in the future post or in another one uh, for hardened BSD, but this one is um, for FreeBSD base. Yeah, for BSD. And the hardware uh, for the people who don't know what this machine can do, 8. Uh, Generation Intel Core i9 uh, 1.9 gigahertz 16 gigs of RAM Uh, They replaced the 15 gigs NVMe disk With a 1 terabyte Samsung Evo uh, Pro NVMe disk Yeah more space Excellent They uh, have a 13.3 inch 1920 by 1080 IPS display Intel graphics Intel wireless 9560 AC uh, 802.11 AC And Bluetooth 5.0 All right uh, they have also um, yeah, important parts that it now supports USB-C and charging from USB-C. So we probably need a couple of uh, new cables um, <laughs> yeah, or a good hub for you. Um, okay, so let's get to the basic parts. Ah, what works? The wireless, keyboard, trackpad, trackpoint, the backlight, sleep and resume, and sound. And they couldn't yet get working the microSD reader and hibernate. Okay, so far, so good. That's a decent machine you can put together this way. That does something already. Uh, They walk through the installer. That's pretty straightforward. What kind of options they selected and some of the core uh, packages that they installed after the installation is done. And then they have a couple of configuration settings. Um, From my glance at them, they are not too system specific, so they could also be applied to other uh, laptops of this kind. Uh, Yes, definitely disable the bell uh, with kern.vt.enable underscore bell equals zero in Uh, (laughs) sysctl.conf. The comment there is, the hardware bell is deafening. I don't frequently want it, so go away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They set up PF with a very simple PF config to uh, block a couple things, then set skip on LO0 and pass out keep state to do the traffic from inside to the outside world, not the other way around. Cool. And a couple uh, services also configured for, I guess, X11 use and setting up of users and some extra nodes back down the list uh, are the backlights. They need to add it or to add a new devd rule. And that's provided in user local share examples, intel backlight. So you just copy those to user local etc devd. And that should give uh, you better backlight out of the box. And future Wi-Fi improvements are also coming down as l- oh, as well as USB audio devices. They have a section on that. So all in all, you can start with that laptop, uh, your BSD, uh, or continue <laughs> your journey where you left off from the old device that you're migrating from. And uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe we'll see some more Wi-Fi uh, things coming down the line. I see a couple things have changed in, in current recently. So maybe there is more support coming down the line. But yeah, the things that were working are pretty uh, well for the things that you would expect from a laptop. And um, I don't see anything about, you know, uh, battery runtime or how long this thing will uh, keep running with a, with a decent workload. But yeah, so far so good,
1: expat. I imagine it's it's somewhat similar to like my X270 and but
0: slightly better because it's newer okay that's our uh, laptop shootout or more like a setup and uh let's talk about how you can upgrade your FreeBSD current with binary upgrades Ooh, that sounds cool yeah uh
1: so this is a project to extend FreeBSD update to handle um updating stable and current branches not just releases I know um Chris Moore tried this years ago but ran into some issues with just the way it was working and decided to go a different direction. But uh, in this case, somebody has actually wired up the uh, the FreeBSD update build process to make it work. So they say, uh, disclaimer, this is a proof of concept and not an official FreeBSD project thing. But up.bsd.lv is a proof of concept for binary updates for FreeBSD's current and uh, stable branches to facilitate more exhaustive testing of FreeBSD and the Beehive hypervisor. Especially, you know, Beehive is getting patches, and they're only available in current, and people would like to be able to run current, but update it without having to recompile and so on. And, you know, OpenZFS 2.0 is coming soon, and again, it'll be handy to have. Uh, So updates are based on the SVN revision of the official FreeBSD release engineering bi-monthly snapshots. So you must install from update uh, or up.bsd.lv disk1 iso install media to obtain updates due to the nature of freebsd update and to discourage use of this service on a production system <laughs> this update also requires the ca root nss package uh, the certctl tool or another uh, certificate bundle to support the retrieval of the ssl certificates but once you've done that uh, to perform an update you can specify the destination snapshot with freebsd update upgrade r 13.0 dash current dash whatever revision number you want, and then FreeBSD update install, reboot, FreeBSD update install again, and then your package and ports are uh, ready to be updated, and so on.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Uh, And so this doesn't work for minor updates. Basically, it treats every upgrade of current as if you were upgrading from, you know, uh, 11 to 12, not as if you were installing... Previous, 11.1 patch ah, 3. okay, it's
0: always the major one. Which
1: I think might be how they got this to work where Chris Moore had failed previously. Okay,
0: but it's definitely a path out of your current current. <laughs> and uh, yeah, why not? It's, it's a way forward.
1: Yeah, you know, the only thing that's a little bit cumbersome with it right now is you have to know what revision you want to update to. And basically, so you have to go to this website and find out which versions are available and update to them, but they, you know, that can be overcome, and that is not that bad of a, a requirement at this point. Yeah, that can
0: be enhanced. Um, but yeah, it's a good, it's a start. It's a good start.
1: Oh, actually, they uh, they have a new command. FreeBSD update list updates, which lists the available versions. So problem solved. Mm. <laughs> okay, pick and choose. So yes. Uh, if you're interested in giving this a test, it's especially useful if you're going to have you know a machine where you're going to say test changes to Beehive in opens ZFS. And yes, uh, special thanks to Connor B for co-developing this. And then, you know, obviously Colin Percival for creating FreeBSD update in the first place. And uh, the FreeBSD release engineering team for helping to maintain the the build infrastructure that makes it possible.
0: And last but not least, Scale Engine for providing the bandwidth. Yes. We
1: host the mirror out of the data center in Portland. Okay.
0: Yeah, see, that's a nice collaboration in various bits to bring this service to the people who are on current and want to get a newer current. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, online backups for the truly
1: paranoid. Head over to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now and you can start backing up your data. Because you definitely need backups. Mm-hmm. As much as you think you might not, you're going to wish you did. And Tarsnap makes it really easy. It's just... You know you can put one line into a cron tab and you're good to go and more importantly because it's pay as you go you put in some money and then you just use it until the money runs out and then you put in more money it means you never get a surprise bill Yeah, it's very predictable right because you you can't use more money than you put into it uh and so you can never get surprised so just head over to startup.com try it out uh start backing up your stuff and Yeah, you'll be able to sleep better at night.
0: Oh, yeah, because uh, no one else can get to your backup in like the background or hack the server where it's lying on or whatever, because it's encrypted. And you're the only person who's holding the key. And before your files leave your computer, they get encrypted locally first and not encrypted on the cloud where it's already too late or on the way. People could snoop the actual files from the network. No, it's everything encrypted locally, you're holding the keys, you're holding everything that you need to decrypt everything. And as long as you have the keys, you can get your data back, no one else. There are various clients available for the Unix systems out there, as well as Cyquin uh, on Windows. So that's even more of a reason to use Starsnap because saying, oh, I don't have a client for my system, doesn't work on this one. It has pretty much all the systems under the sun. And importantly, the client is open source so
1: you can look at it and uh, validate it and you could patch it to run on whatever weird operating system you happen to need to run it on.
0: You should also check out the Tarsnap documentation. There's a Tarsnap IRC channel on Fnet if you have questions. uh, There's probably, uh, oh there's a mailing list for Tarsnap users so you can exchange your latest backup statistics or any questions you might have there. Or you can contact also the author directly and ask question if that is very uh, specific to your use case, for example.
1: Yes, and then they even have a great technical section on the website, like, why are tar snap prices defined in Pico dollars? Mm-hmm. That's a bit
0: unusual for pricing, but it works. <laughs>
1: because rounding
0: and money don't work well <laughs> together. <laughs> Turns out it does, yeah. <laughs> and, uh Yeah. The diagram down the page uh, on the front page checks uh, all the boxes and describes how all this thing uh, is working in the background and how it's leaving your computer in encrypted form or going back down in the other way with the keys to the castle. All right, feedback and questions are always the part of the show that not only uh, our listeners look forward to, but also us because it's very... uh, unscheduled or let's say unprepared because we usually don't know what's coming and if you don't keep us with supplying your questions then this section will be very uh, empty and we will be very sad because we don't have anything to, a- to answer. Um, feedback at bsdnow.tv is your email address where you can send all these in and in future episodes they will appear and we will hopefully uh, answer your question or the issue that you might have Uh, The first one is Carl this week with PFSense. Carl writes, hi, Alan, Benedict, and JT. I started listening to your show a few years ago and really enjoy a new dose of BSD whenever an episode comes out. Yep, same for us. I have PFSense running on a small fanless box as my home firewall and router. I have a second box with identical hardware, which I'd like to maintain as a spare in case the primary fails. Ah, Good thinking. Ideally, the backup would have the same version of PFSense and its packages. But how do I accomplish this? Doing a backup of the config.xml file on the primary and restoring it to the backup is easy enough. But it seems the backup box needs to be connected to the internet to get updates of PFSense and its packages. I could temporarily replace the primary with a backup to update PFSense and packages, but this seems a bit cumbersome. Can you suggest an easier way? So should that be a cold standby or a hot standby? Hmm. Or just any any kind of standby to just have a way to switch without losing much time or uh, data even?
1: Yeah, so the way I've done things like this normally is each of these two boxes would have their own IP address and then they would have one that they shared with something like carp where only one of them would be active at a time. Uh, And that way the backup could still be on the internet and download stuff. But if the primary goes down, it would then take over both the public facing IP and the internal facing IP, so that all the clients would connect to them. Um, It depends how you do this. Like, I don't know if PFSense has something for this, but there's a a process uh, called PFSync, which actually syncs the firewall state. So like the, the NAT rules and the actual like open connection state between the two machines, so that when you do fail over to the other one, any open connections you have don't get dropped as well. And so you might want to look more into something uh, like that. But yeah, if you're just trying to backup and restore the config, then it's going to want the same IP addresses, uh, and it's going to make a bit of a mess. Yeah, I don't know a great answer off the top of my head to that, other than you know having it configured as a, a regular client and getting the updates, and then only restoring. The config file when you actually need to make the to flip the switch or looking into something more complicated like the active active setup we was discussing where both of them would be on all the time and the failover might even be automatic where you can just pull the plug on the the first router and the second one would automatically detect that within milliseconds and, and switch over
0: yeah if other people have done things like that or have a cool setup somewhere then definitely send this to us and we will follow up on this one, and then everyone knows about this, and uh, we'll have a proper backup, because that's what we want to have, right? Primary goes down, secondary is available, and uh, vice versa, you can switch back after the primary is back up again.
1: Yeah, and it's basically what CARP uh, and PF-Sync were designed for, uh, but I don't know if PF-Sense really offers an out-of-box solution for that, because it's it gets much more complicated when you want to have active-active like that.
0: Yeah, hope that gave you a couple pointers to uh, get this done. And uh, definitely let us know if it solved your question or if you maybe have time to write a blog post or something, then other people can also get that uh, knowledge. From Carl to Val, the second one is um, the second question, ESXi question. Ah, sounds interesting. Uh, Val writes, hi, Benedict and Alan. I have been a FreeBSD user and fan for over six years now. Many of my reasons why can be attributed to this great podcast. Ah, great. I run a small home network at the heart of its uh, Dell T110 running VMware ESXi. The VMware server hosts the following VMs all running FreeBSD. VM1. PFSense, VM acting as my home router firewall. VM2, Plex server. VM3, remote access server I use to SSH into my network remotely and create tunnels. VM4 is a utility server that runs various tools such as transmission, sonar, and an OpenVPN client. Mm -hmm. So far, so good. The SXI server has three physical NICs. Two of the NICs are bonded into a static port channel configuration as a trunk to a Cisco 3560 switch third NIC is plugged straight into the ISP modem as an access port. On the ESXi server, the port channel is tagging packets for various VLANs, public Wi-Fi, streaming devices, uh, servers, etc. into separate V-switches, which are in turn fed to the PFSense VM as a separate virtual interface. While the third NIC is handed directly to the PFSense VM to grab a public IP directory from my modem. The other two VMs are nothing special. Okay. So, for the most part, this setup works perfectly fine. However, I have been looking at replacing the Dell server with a more modern, capable hardware to follow me to host more VMs. Ah, yeah, extend. Also, as comfortable as am I am uh, administering the SXI server, I have been playing a bit by, uh, with Beehive on a physical FreeBSD test machine and have found it fairly easy to build and manage VMs using IOHive. I would also like to be able to snapshot these VMs using ZFS and backup those snapshots to my FreeNAS Mini. All good thinking. So here are my questions. Do you believe Beehive is stable and mature enough to be run in a production environment and capable of replacing VMware ESXi?
1: So Beehive is stable enough to be run in a production environment, and plenty of people do. For replacing ESXi, it mostly comes down to the management bits. If you're just using VMware to start the VMs and leave them running then yes, Beehive can do that. But if you're doing more complicated things uh, and are trying to, you know, if your configuration changes frequently, you might find Beehive that the tooling around it is not as mature yet. But as far as, you know, running four VMs and keeping them running, uh, Beehive will do fine.
0: Yeah, if you're comfortable on the console, then that's fine. If you're more the GUI or web uh, type person that configures there everything, that's a bit uh, not not present in Beehive because that's not the development goal of Beehive necessarily. So ESXi has the the better GUI in this department.
1: Well, you know, it also took VMware fifteen years to right
0: get to ESX
1: to be something that
0: useful Oh yes, they have a lot of head of a head start, and uh yeah, Beehive is quick to catch up, but uh, not as quick. So, uh, but definitely production ready. And uh, a lot of people are using that in similar environments. Second question is, is it possible to easily duplicate my setup in Beehive, specifically my PFSense config?
1: (laughs) Yes-ish. Basically those V switches will be replaced with bridges and you'll do it that way. Then mostly you'll have to decide one way or the other, whether to do the VLAN tagging on the host or in the VM. But since they're all controlled by you, You can just do whatever's easier. Obviously, if it's an environment where you don't control the contents of the VM or don't trust the contents of the VM. You would want to enforce the VLANs on the the host side. But yes, basically, you would take your physical NICs and then apply the VLANs to them, which basically creates a new interface like, you know, IGB 0.100 for VLAN 100. And then you would create bridges for each of those V switches and put the the VLAN into it and then the tap interfaces that come from the beehives uh, into the right v switches or bridges and then yeah and then you can you could choose to do the full like pci pass through thing to get the NIC that goes out to the modem directly into the PFSense, or you can just do it as another v switch you know a bridge of the tap and that physical interface
0: uh then the third uh, is iohive your recommended method of managing or creating virtual machines for beehive or could you offer a better easier solution to manage these vms
1: i don't i don't have much experience with any of the beehive tools I've mostly done it the manual way because of my needs are usually for temporary VMs to test stuff in, that I've just built uh, and doing NFS root VMs so that I can recompile the kernel on my 40 core machine and then boot it in a VM and see if it works and then see it not work and then make a change and compile again and then boot the VM again and it automatically picks up the new kernel. More advanced things but by I know iHive is okay. I know that I think IOCage has some stuff now or something. I don't know.
0: That's what I use.
1: There are lots to pick from. I don't know if anyone is better than any other one. Yeah, uh, You might have to ask
0: uh,
1: people that use one of the other tools. Mm.
0: Yeah, I use uh, IOCage um, heavily. I would say, well, you know how VMs are, are. Like, If they're running, everything is fine. You don't need to manage them all the time. And just to create a couple of them... Uh, they get the job done pretty quickly with iocage create i think iohive is uh, also quite capable of sol- solving that problem and the management layer is per- probably similar to the other one okay and then what are your thoughts on running freebsd on bare metal systems using amd optron cpus the new server i'm looking to purchase is an hpe microserver gen 10 that features this type of cpu probably fine like um i know that beehive worked on
1: some of the amds i don't know for sure how great it is on later ones but i think it's supported it sounds like the the microserver gen 10 uses an apu which is amd's kind of smaller cpus i can't give you an exact opinion on that but you might check the beehive mailing list but as far as i know uh beehive works on the older Opteron type amds and the newer ryzen type
0: yeah Maybe you can find a uh, message for that exact CPU in a system that's booting. And, well, uh, I, don't, I don't know that that actually
1: helps you know how well Beehive is supported. Uh, if you're not trying to do PCI pass-through, I think most of it is probably working. And I don't know for sure on the hardware pass-through for AMD specifically.
0: Yeah, hunt around a bit on the web. Maybe there's someone who, who has that already.
1: But yes, those, these microservers are extremely popular for FreeBSD. Uh, and I'm sure somebody has uh, tried Beehive on it and has posted the results somewhere.
0: If you want, you could document your journey like, uh, for example, Dan Langell does in all his uh, doings, uh, everything that, that works, everything that is not working yet, with some error messages maybe. Would be nice to have this kind of setup that you're uh, trying or replicating um, as a, a series of blog posts, for example, so we can either features here on the show Or other people could also be interested in a similar setup and uh, make use of your knowledge written down this way. Uh, Definitely um, keep us informed if you have uh, something new there. The next person is Lars with an OpenBSD router hardware question. Ah, So this is a bit shorter, but nonetheless important. Uh, Goes like this. Hi, JT, Alan and Benedict. Happy midsummer. Thank you. Happy midsummer to you as well. Which hardware would have 8 to 12 port gigabit Ethernet and be capable of running OpenBSD? This would need to be available in Europe. Bonus for non-X86 systems. If one can dream, it would be very nice to have GPIO pins as well. But the essential characteristic would be gigabit Ethernet for all 8 to 12 ports.
1: So it can depend a bit of what you're actually after.
0: There are some hardware which will
1: have an 8 or 12 port switch where there's another port in that switch that goes into the CPU in the in the hardware. And the advantage of this is obviously it means you don't have to go through the CPU at all when you want traffic to come in one of those 8 or 12 ports and go out another one of them. But that, you know, if the traffic is pointed at the router, it can actually come in. But, you know, in that type of situation, often the bandwidth into the router, like or the bandwidth that's actually going to pass through the router is going to be limited to the 1 gigabit on it because it's actually basically a, a, a ninth or 13th port in the in the switch. Or something more like, you know, a regular machine with 3 quad port NICs or PCIe cards or whatever um, that can give you that uh, and maybe be more capable of getting bandwidth in and out of the CPU. Uh, it kind of depends what you're wanting it for. For a router, yeah, it basically depends. Do you actually want a switch that is also a router? Or do you want just a router where you actually need to be able to you know have traffic come in on a bunch of these ports and then go out different ports depending on what's happening so i guess the good question is this is a router and it's got eight or 12 gigabit ports coming in do you expect the the destination of all this routing to actually be just one port at one gigabit uh then it maybe is easier to do with something like that like um the little mips um tp-link router that we did at BSDCAN a couple years ago was six or eight port switch with, and then the CPU was on one of those internal ports I kind of mentioned, and there's even a free BSD tool called SwitchCTL that you can use to configure the VLANs and stuff that apply to each of those ports, and, you know, it's meant to be a Wi-Fi router, basically. But, you know, we've kind of overloaded the word router in that case, right? Yeah. Uh, if it's just meant to be a gateway where it's going to do NAT for these eight or 12 ports out a single gigabit port to the internet, then you probably want more of the switch type. Whereas if it's actually going to, you know, take internet in on eight, or, you know, take traffic from machines in on eight of these ports, and then the next four ports are going to four different destinations, and the router is actually going to route traffic or and make decisions uh, more than just, you know, firewall and NAT, then you probably need something that has, that actually has 12 separate gigabit interfaces rather than, a basically an eight or twelve port switch with a tap that goes to the CPU of the gateway machine. Mm-hmm. I've not really looked for this type of hardware before. I think there's um a super micro uh, chassis that has something like this, and then you know the. PC Engines makes a lot of things like this, although I don't know that they go up to 12 ports for that.
0: Yeah, check out the website. There's probably more. Maybe if one of our listeners has exactly this dream uh, port or gigabit uh, Ethernet uh, device, then definitely reach out and we'll do a follow-up on this one. And then maybe other people who are also desperately looking for exactly this kind of hardware uh, 'll we'll know it from a future episode,
1: but yeah, uh, so I know Supermico makes some stuff now that's even designed to be mounted on a telephone pole <laughs> or a telegraph pole. ooh, okay, <laughs> but they have some things that have like yeah, eight gigabit ports and then some SFP slots for faster than that, like the random one I just clicked on, this one's probably much bigger than what you're actually looking for, but you don't. Know, Dual power supplies, four two and a half inch drives, nine gigabit interfaces, plus four 10 gigabit interfaces, and then a dedicated IPMI slot or a port and, you know, a beefy 14 core Xeon D processor.
0: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's beefy.
1: And, you know, room for a bunch of expansion cards so you can do other stuff with it. But yeah, so that such things do exist. Although it really depends on your use case, whether you want something that actually has eight of those gigabit ports, or if you actually just want something that has an eight port switch with a one gigabit tap to the the router or whatever.
0: Okay. So far, so good. Uh, Maybe you can find that little gem that we haven't found yet. Uh,
1: Hopefully with with that in mind, you'll be able to have a more productive search. Uh, And, you know, whether you're actually looking for something that has a switch uh, that is connected internally to uh, the motherboard so that you can uh you know make if you're just after making a little nat gateway uh that's probably what you want whereas if you're doing something slightly more heavy duty where you might actually
0: want eight separate gigabit ports uh yeah that pretty much wraps up this week's episode Uh, thank you for listening as always keep us posted of anything that is in the bsd space that we might not have picked up on our radar and uh let us know on feedback at bstnow.tv and then next week of course there's a new episode for you fresh out of the oven Well, looking at the temperatures outside it's more oven like Uh, thank you for listening and till next time